0: pick up the phone and it's Mickey Drexler. And yeah, and so I joke that Mickey Drexler started me on my career in marketing, even though I never ended up working for Mickey. I actually wasn't looking for a job at The Gap. (laughs) (laughs) And connected me to his head of recruiting, Susan Cooper. Two weeks go by and the phone rings and it's Susan Cooper. And Susan Cooper basically said to me, what you have is a marketing idea. Have you ever considered going into marketing? And honestly, that is what started my career in marketing.
2: Hey, everybody, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast, which is the podcast for folks just like you who are looking to turn up the volume, show your value, and lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. Well, we have an awesome show for you today. I have one of my old buds, Miriam Banakarum, who is the head of marketing, community, and global at one of my favorite apps, Nextdoor. And she's also the co founder founder of NYC Next. Now, when I was talking to Miriam, it really reminded me about all of the amazing times that I've had in the past working with cool CMOs and business leaders like Miriam, helping to facilitate the people side of business transformation. Now, you know I've spent over 25 years in Hollywood, and in media, most business transformations entail a rebrand because it is the moment for that network, or that studio or that property to really become refocused on who the audience is that we are going to serve and ultimately identify not just how we're going to serve them, but how we are going to super serve them. Now, during all of those great conversations and business transformations, you know, I realized that in business, we're always going to our HR leaders to talk about personal branding. And while I love all of my HR peeps and I'm part of that HR tribe, I quickly realized in those conversations that we need to stop going to HR people to talk about personal branding. Why aren't we going to great chief marketing officers? And that's why I have so many great CMOs like Miriam on the podcast all of the time. And ultimately, that's what's inspired me to create the lead with your brand system. It's quite simply taking a brand marketer's toolkit and turning it inside so that we can create our best personal and professional brands that bring our best authentic selves to the table. Now, last week, I had the pleasure of doing a big corporate keynote down in Orlando, and you all know that I'm in Orlando all of the time, but let me tell you, this was the first time that I've been to Orlando and never left the airport because I was speaking at the Hyatt Orlando International Airport Hotel, which is literally, I've never realized this above the airport people. I was doing a big lead with your brand keynote, and I got up early because I wanted to grab a cup of coffee before I went to do my sound check and my AV check. So I figured, you know what, I'll just go down into the airport before security. There's probably like five Starbucks there. I'll grab a cup of coffee, and at 6.45 in the morning, Guess what I found? You guessed it, huge lines. Now, I'm not just talking like a line. I'm talking like Disney World lines where I was like, where's my lightning lane? Where's my fast pass, right? How do I get to the front of the line? I actually went to a couple of them and they all had long lines. So of course I hopped in that line as everybody else was. And I realized right then and there, like I'm looking around and every other place at the airport is serving coffee, but people aren't waiting in line. Heck, even the pizza place in the morning was serving coffee and there wasn't anyone waiting in line. Now I'm waiting in line to get my, you know, iced decaf venti Americano with two Splenda and a little bit of non-fat milk, of course, with my special request to get it in a Trenta cup with extra ice. Don't ask, it's a whole thing, right? But I'm flipping through my Facebook and my Instagram stories. And as I'm waiting in line, I'm flipping through, and no less than four of my friends have posted stories stories in the past 24 hours where they are taking a picture of the gas pump in their city or their local gas station, the price board, because they are floored by the cost of gas as we all are. And it suddenly dawned on me all over again about what we always talk about. Quite frankly, all of these people were willing to stand in line to spend about five bucks or more on a cup of coffee that isn't even refillable at Starbucks. Yet we're all complaining about the cost of gas, the gas that gets us going to work to get a paycheck and gets our kids to soccer practice. Right. We're complaining about the cost of gas. But none of us are changing our behavior about going to Starbucks and spending that money. And that, people, is ultimately the power of brand, right? So when I ask you that question, in your career, are you coffee? Or are you Starbucks? What I'm really asking is, in your job, in your career, are you just seen as a commodity worker that's, you know, interchangeable, that anybody else in the company can do, that they can fill that job easily? Or... Are you seen as someone who's bringing immense value that people are willing to wait in line for, that people are willing to pay you more for, that people are literally sitting outside your cubicle or your office door waiting for your advice, waiting for your insights, and waiting for your recommendations? Ultimately, that's what the lead with your brand system is all about. So, I want you to think about taking these five steps. The first thing, you've gotta define your audience. You've got to figure out who you are going to super serve. Because if you're trying to be something to everybody, guess what? You're really nothing to no one. So figure out who you're going to serve and then figure out how you're going to super serve them. Then you've got to know what you stand for today, right? This isn't about trying to be someone that you're not. It's not about trying to be Oprah or Sheryl Sandberg, right? You've got to be you, but you've got to be the best you you can be. Then we want to super supersize those words. We want you to figure out who you are and supersize that purpose. Supersize those words so that you can keep up your image and create an image that sings in harmony with your true brand DNA. And then finally, we want you to promote yourself. You've got to get out there and you've got to do your own advertising, your own billboards, your own banner ads, and it's called things like your LinkedIn posts, your social media profile, how you introduce yourself on all of those Zoom calls. Well, I am super excited for today's guest because she is all about helping us figure out our brand DNA. It is Mariam Banakaram, who is the head of marketing, community, and global at Nextdoor, and she's also the co founder of NYC Next. Now, Miriam captured national attention with her viral New York Times essay on taking a pause at the height of her highly successful career. As a chief marketing officer who led four major businesses through sweeping transformations and top-line growth, Miriam has made a name for herself as a purpose-driven change agent who embraces diversity and inclusion and builds brands that are respected and love. Now, her passion for community has has drawn her to Nextdoor, the neighborhood network where neighbors go to connect to their neighborhoods that matter so that they can belong. At Nextdoor, Miriam oversees marketing, community, and global. Now, prior to Nextdoor, Miriam was global chief marketing officer at Hyatt, Gannett, NBC Universal, and Univision. Now, she also currently serves on the board of One Spa World, Reporters Without Borders, and the Mobile Marketing Association. She's an advisor to the Brand 50, Strawberry Fog, and Cove Hill Partners, and a member of Fast Company's Impact Council, Adweek's Women Trailblazers, and the Time 100 Advisory Board. We'll be back in just a couple of moments with Mariam Banakara And we are back. I am thrilled to reconnect with one of my old friends. It is Miriam Banakaram, who is the head of marketing, community, and global at Nextdoor and the co-founder of NYC Next. Miriam, what's going on?
0: Jason, it's always lovely to see you.
2: I love hanging out with you, Miriam, and it's been so long given COVID and all of the uh, the crazy things and moving around the country. But tell me, what is hot and exciting in your career right now?
0: You know, honestly, we're in the middle of the next Nextdoor 100, and I'm super excited about this effort that we have underway because, as you know, these last two years, we've really relied on our neighbors. And so... As you you and I come from the world of entertainment and we spent a lot of time at NBC Universal and we put on lots of award shows where we, you know, celebrated celebrities of all kinds. But the celebrities of today are really our neighbors. And that is actually one of the things that I'm really excited about because there's all sorts of glamorous award shows out there. But at next door, we think that the most deserving people are literally your nearby neighbors, right? Those supportive, surprising, creative, you know, never not there when you need them, sort of people down the street from me, that would be like Nathaniel and Troy, who were in my pod, uh, Roland from the French bakery, Susan, who organized a food drive for the ENT workers, like the people that we had to turn to because we were in place together. And that bonding from coming together has been remarkable. And we thought, what better way than to see if other people felt the way we did. And we have over th- 33,000 nominations already, which oh means my gosh. there is, in fact, something here, right? I think we're not the only ones who feel that way. So I think that's very exciting.
2: And how can our listeners participate in The Next Door 100?
0: Go to the nextdoor 100com and nominate one of these people who is there for you, right? And I think we're seeing sort of the stories that um, neighbors have been submitting, whether it's somebody who showed up and mowed the lawn for you when you were sick and you couldn't get out without actually having to be asked or a neighbor who actually stood to make sure that the cars slow down to make sure that the kids were safe to the ones who supported their local businesses. I mean, the stories are really heartwarming. We, We joke in the office that if you're having a low day, all you have to do is go read some of these submissions and recognize the humanity that is out in the world every day.
2: Yes, well, I have always been a fan of Nextdoor, but during the pandemic, it was amazing to see my neighbors post and be able to find like the grocery store that actually had hand sanitizer or wipes. Um, and then now I get to see all of the kids growing up in our neighborhood when they're playing and people posting pictures. So it's such an amazing platform.
0: It's. I mean, honestly, I'm in New York. People think New Yorkers aren't friendly, and that you know we're big city people. And what I say is New York is just comprised of a 100- hundred you know, little neighborhoods. My neighborhood of Chelsea is very neighborly. Um, you know, I said we have the longest running block association in the history of New York. And so these are New Yorkers who, you know, come come out and defend their neighbors. And so it's been remarkable to actually get to know them because like you, Jason, I spent most of my time on a plane, but now I actually spent a lot of time in my neighborhood.
2: Oh, that's super cool. So talk to me. Let's go way back when you were a little kid. What is it that you wanted to be when you grew up?
0: You know, that's one of those security questions that I sometimes have to answer when I'm <laughs> forgetting my password. And I think my earliest memories, I wanted to be a policeman. Ooh. Which is sort of interesting, I guess. I think there was sort of this idea of being of service that was always something that I must have grown up with in my home. Um, so that would be like, I think when I was three and getting on the bus, that's what my mom tells me I, I used to say. Um, Probably after that, I thought I'd be a dancer, although I was really, really not talented. <laughs> so that, that was just a drawback. And I always say, like, in my head, I danced really well. In reality, that might be a different story. And then I would say after that, I really wanted to tell stories, right? I wanted to be mm. a journalist. turned out I chose to tell stories in marketing rather than, um, you know, through newspapers or websites, but similar.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you're a storyteller and you've worked for great organizations like Gannett and NBC Universal where we met and Univision and, and Hyatt. How did you break into the marketing world to begin with?
0: You know, I don't think I knew what marketing was when I was graduating from college or even I would say from business school, <laughs> which might be a little bit shocking. Um, you know, so I went to business school. I only took a year off in between undergrad and graduate school. So yeah. that was rare, particularly in those days. But when I was at business school, Um, a friend actually came over and he saw this mock-up that I had on my bookshelf. And so rewind to when I was in undergrad, I had written a travel column for the Barnard newspaper, which was sort of an insider's guide. And, you know, I was a kid who moved a lot. So becoming an insider was something I always craved when I showed up in a new neighborhood. So it was sort of a column that said, like, if you go to Paris, here's the five places to go where the locals go. And at that time, The Gap had a famous campaign called Individuals of Style. And it mm. basically featured like Kim Basinger in a white t-shirt. Yeah, um, It was when The Gap was cool. And so they localized that effort because <laughs> it was so successful that they localized it. So in New York, they would feature Jim Jarmusch or John Lurie, sort of underground indie um, figures. And one of the places I'd written about for New York was Max Fish and that's where John Lurie and Jim Jarmusch used to hang out. So I sort of had this idea in my head what if I could convince the Gap to actually take their campaign and combine it with my insider's column and actually sell them or give them away at you know the cash register? We now call that branded entertainment. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a thing. Um so fast forward to business school, I had always had this mock-up sort of sitting on my shelf. And a friend says, Oh my God, Mickey Drexler, the president of the gap, came to speak at our retailing class. He's really approachable. You should send this to him. And this You know, I graduated pre-internet, I like to joke about that now. So (laughs) I ended up taking the mock-up, doing a little bit of research and sending it in the mail to him.
2: Wow, in snail mail.
0: In snail mail, yep. And um, never really thinking anything would come of it. Fast forward, it's finals and I'm studying and the phone rings, landline. And um, I pick up the phone and it's Mickey Drexler. And (laughs) yeah, and so I joke that Mickey Drexler started me on my career in marketing, even though I never ended up working for Mickey. I actually wasn't looking for a job at The Gap (laughs) (laughs) and connected me to his head of recruiting, Susan Cooper. Two weeks go by and the phone rings and it's Susan Cooper. And Susan Cooper basically said to me, what you have is a marketing idea. Have you ever considered going into marketing? And honestly, that is what started my career in marketing.
2: Wow, that is amazing. So fast forward, what do you consider some of the biggest career breakthroughs past that experience at The Gap?
0: Mm, I think- So that job, right, I would tell that story. And if I was telling it to an advertising agency or a marketing company, that invariably was the kind of thing that made them want to hire me. I tell everyone looking for a job, look for your version of the gap story because it helps you come off the page and it shows that you can actually make things happen. Yeah. I would say for me, you know, every job and I was sort of a millennial before my time and that I've had like 60 jobs, Yeah. Might be a slight exaggeration, but you get the gist. Every job taught me something. I would say, you know, one of my seminal jobs was a job I had after YNR, which was my first job after business school. I went to go work at Turner Broadcasting for a man named Steve Heyer, and he really was an early sort of McKinsey. He was he was actually a BC Gerbane guy, and he came in to turn Turner around. And he sort of brought the discipline of consultative selling to like the media business, yeah. and he was basically teaching us how to sell strategically. And I really learned a lot about strategy from that experience of working for Steve. It became a seminal moment, I think, in my career. It was a tough job. Um, sometimes you learn from the hardest jobs. I used to joke that I couldn't eat Chinese food for a year after that job because we worked so late. We had must have a Chinese food every night for a year in a row. <laughs> um, but it was also a seminal job because he taught me how to think and how to present. I still. People are always amazed by my PowerPoint skills. It goes all the way back to Steve Heyer.
2: I love PowerPoint. What did what did what did he teach you about PowerPoint?
0: You know, so one of the crazy things about doing great storytelling and actually doing it on slides is that you would just look at the headlines. So we would do this exercise where you would print out your deck and you would paste it on a wall and you would say like do the headlines just tell a story? And then you could move the pages around, right? Mm. It's one of the things I miss about being in an office where you can print and sort of be in a war room together. You stick it up. You're like, wait, is this working? No, what if I move this here and I move that there? But the headline story of how am I telling the story was a really good trick. The other thing is he taught us that we had to have very short decks because the deck is really a tool to enable you to have a conversation right so i've worked with many people who would show up with like 60 page decks nobody wants that nobody wants yeah. that um yeah. I it's think really wetting
2: the, other- the appetite right so that we can have yeah. the conversation
0: i think the other thing that he taught us which you know um is is a classic tenant of strategic selling was start with the customer nobody mm. cares about you i mean i don't mean to be you know obvious but start with the customer like take the time to do the homework and start with telling us what you what you know about me and it was remarkable how that basic flip really made a difference and how uncomfortable it made a lot of people because it was like why would i go in and tell them about them they know everything about them but what it does is it says i've done my homework mm. and by the way it's through that lens that i'm coming up with solutions for you i'm not just trying to sell you something cuz it's good for me it's actually i'm trying to solve your problem and i've taken the time to be respectable enough to have done the homework and to show you that that's how I come to the table. And that really was a really great, great lesson that I have carried ever since.
2: Yeah. And so, Miriam, tell me, there's a difference between being a great marketer and being a great marketing executive that leads teams and uh, advises the overall business. For you, what was that shift like?
0: Uh, That's interesting. I think probably where that really turned for me was when I became sort of more of an executive, so I would say, I, okay, so here's how my career went. I went to YNR after business school. Then I went to City Search. So very early internet. Yeah. Then I went to Macmillan Book Publishing. And by the way, when I went to the internet, that was a 94, 95. People thought I was leaping off a tall building because nobody, <laughs> nobody would leave Turner to go to an unknown thing called the yeah. internet. Yeah. So I did YNR, Turner, City Search, then Macmillan Book Publishing, where I actually was a book publisher. That definitely taught me about leading teams and motivating people, but it was still small. I then went to a job at Amarati, which was really just a crazy job. It didn't actually last very long. So not everything always works out. And at that job, when I left, I ended up sort of starting my own business. So for five years, I ended up having my own sort of handbag slash consulting business. (laughs) Um,
2: We'll mash it all together.
0: Yeah. And then I came, went sort of in that job is when I um, took a meeting at Univision and then ended up going back into corporate America. That was the first time where I sort of came back into a corporate job and I ran sort of a department and then became their first ever CMO and sort of like moved into that track. And so now this is my fifth CMO job. Yeah. I'm like a serial CMO, apparently. Uh,
2: now, you really captured national attention uh, when your New York Times essay went viral on taking a pause. So tell us a little bit about taking the pause and what was it like having that shot out to everyone in the Times?
0: Well, so after my fourth CMO job, I had um, taken a job in Chicago. I'd actually moved my family to Chicago to be the um, head of global marketing for Hyde Hotels. I was about to actually take another job and and commute back to New York because we had we had moved but never had sold her house in New York and knew that we were always gonna come back here. And as I was about to take this job, my, my second child, my son, Nikki, um, looked at me and he said, "'Mom, I totally appreciate if you take this job, "'but I just want you to know that I would miss you.'" And, you know, he wasn't mm. my most verbal child of the two of them at that time. Yeah. And it was kind of one of those moments where I had to look at myself and say, okay, Honestly, I've been working nonstop since I'm 16. Yeah, I took one day off between Gannett and Hyatt. That's probably not the best advice I would give anybody. <laughs> so I could probably just use a breath. And by the way, I should hear what Nikki's saying and recognize, you know, is there a different decision that I need to make that prioritizes a different part of my life? Yeah. And so I um, withdrew from that, you know, from that process and um, took time off. So. You know, I didn't think I was going to write for the New York Times when I made that decision, <laughs> obviously. Um, so I, you know, gave a long notice and then I ended up not working for a year and a half. And as my son would say, for an unemployed person, mom, you seem to be on the road a lot. So that was also hysterical.
2: Um, <laughs> you can't win.
0: You can't, you know, you are who you are. So I, I would say I was, I took the summer off and we actually moved the family to LA and I was, one of my fantasies was always living by the beach. And so we had the luxury of living like in Venice Beach for the summer. And I remember I was in the backyard, sort of like writing, because I'd gotten to writing again, something I really didn't have an opportunity to do in all my, you know, um, high pressure jobs. And a friend called and said, okay, I don't understand. What exactly are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just taking a pause. And she said, oh, that's really brave. Mm, Really brave. And that was just one of those things where I thought to myself, like, Actually, it's such a luxury. Like I'm sitting here in Venice Beach. Like this is kind of the definition of privilege. And what is so brave about that? And yeah. that's really what prompted me. I I just, it just came, right? I just sat down, I wrote that piece and I submitted it to the Times, never really thinking that anything would come of it. So fast forward to November, I get this phone call and they say, um, it's the New York Times. We are interested in your story. If you haven't sold it to anybody else, we'd like to buy it from you. Wow. Like, what? <laughs> No, I haven't been shopping it around. Um, And I actually had to pause in that moment to be like, okay, wait a second. This is real. Am I really like saying these words out loud in print? Um, You know, (laughs) and I did. And honestly, it was kind of a really interesting experience because it has turned out to be quite evergreen. People still find me from that article. Yeah, It led me to you know, be on a morning show. It led me to actually give some talks. It led me to lunch with people I'd never met before. Yeah. People found me and said things like, we're from, you know, Michigan. We don't read the Times, but we've somehow managed to find your article and here's my experience of it. Or I'm an immigrant and we don't leave a job without another job. So this was really an interesting perspective. So I think it was interesting to see that just it gave people permission Um, and how, you know, sometimes we just need to be more transparent about our journey, to make room for people to sort of do what they need to do in different chapters of their life.
2: And I know now on big social platforms, you're sharing all sorts of great advice that help inspire uh, folks to take risks and take pauses and really think smartly about their careers. How how did that kind of uh, transpire when you have a full-time job already?
0: Well, it might be that I'm that kind of crazy. That's what my family would say. Um, You know, I think it was like in the November timeframe, one of the things that door is we're very interested in how do you inspire neighbors to generate more content? How do you get them to engage and actually enable them to be sort of active on the platform? Not just to stay on the platform, but to actually then find each other in real life. And so as yeah. we were sort of thinking about sort of the process of content creation, um, I had the opportunity to be part of this program that LinkedIn had launched called uh, the Content Creators Program. And at first, I, you know, I sort of, a, I was like, okay, what would I do? What kind of content would I publish? And honestly, I was getting a lot of requests for advice. And I thought, okay, well, if I could do this in a scalable way where, you know, it's hard to make time to do lots of phone calls in the middle of your busy job in life. But what if I could answer questions sort of kind of like Dear Abby, um, what would that be like? And that's really what inspired the idea. And so I committed for three months to do a newsletter. And um, here's my headline. It's a lot of work if you want to do it and do it well. (laughs) But it was really rewarding. It was amazing to actually engage with the community and to really enlist the community that I had been able to build over time through my career to help answer some of these questions that I may not have expertise in, but that I could tap into other people who were generous enough to take the time to help give advice to people who were looking for that in that moment.
2: Yeah, well, I love reading your posts. They are always thought-provoking and inspirational. Let's flip and talk a little bit about your brand as a CMO and an executive. Miriam, give me three words that you would use to describe you.
0: I think my brand is now that of being a purpose-driven CMO.
2: Mm. So say more about that. What does that mean to you?
0: Well, so when I was at Univision, I ended up going with Jerry Prenshaw, who at the time owned Univision, to go see Roy Spence. We wanted to do an ad campaign, which we'd never really done for Univision, to the trade. And somebody actually Katzenberg had recommended to Jerry, because of course, billionaires all play um, poker together, that we should go see Roy Spence. And we went, we flew in to go see Roy Spence. And Roy said, I don't want to do an ad campaign for you. I want to do purpose work for you. And mm. that was really the first time I had um, been introduced to purpose. And by purpose, it's really the Jim Collins vein of purpose. So, you know, Jim Collins has written many books called From Good to Great, which is a great read. Yeah. and it was really about what is the north star of an organization, right? What is the difference you wanna make in the world beyond just making money? I mean, obviously you're a business, so you wanna make money, but what is that intersection where it's what you're good at, sort of the difference you wanna make in the world, and what drives your economic engine? And that concept really resonated with me. That's when I actually first got introduced to Purpose. I ended up doing that work for Jerry at Univision, and then that sort of became my signature. So in fact, Jason, interestingly enough, when I went to NBC Universal. I remember um talking to one of the executives in charge of strategy and saying, We should do this purpose work, like good to great. And they would, you know, they sort of, you know, it was one of those moments where somebody looks at you and they're like, Why be good? Why be great when you can be good? And I was like, Okay, I mean, this is like a joke to them. (laughs) They're never gonna move this project forward. And then fast forward we were being bought by Comcast, you remember that window. And um at that point the creative agency reported to me. And so we were meeting with Jeff Zucker to actually talk about what we were going to do for day one, where the two companies came together. And the idea was that everybody was going to get some sort of a tchotchke on their desk. And I said, okay, this just seems like a wasted opportunity. Like these two incredible entities are coming together. This is sort of the beginning of a big moment. Like what is our DNA? What is the difference we want to make? And like, seems to me, this is a moment that we should actually undertake this research to see what the difference is we want to make in the world. And so it was a different moment because it was at a moment where two companies that were disparate were coming together, but I ended yeah. up being able to do that work for Jeff Sucker and then finishing it for Steve Burke. And it was super fascinating to see what the similarities were between these two sort of enormous entities with incredible legacies. And yet this incredible commonality, which was really around ideas. Yeah. Um, and so that was an amazing project. And so that, you know, became sort of the thing that I really knew how to do and how to not just talk about purpose, but actually bring it to life in an organization. And then that sort of took me to Gannett, which I ended up doing that work there, then took me to Hyatt. And honestly, it's what brought me here to Nextdoor.
2: Yeah. And so talk to me, how do you show up every day in an organization and with your team being purpose-driven? What are those things that you might do differently than if you were just a CMO?
0: Well, I mean, so let's go back to what purpose is. I think a great, easy to understand example of purpose is the work that Roy Spence and those guys did for Southwest Airlines. Yeah. So they said they did this work, and what when you're trying to understand your purpose, it's like you're excavating your DNA. So they yeah. actually interview the most motivated employees within an organization, because it is, what are you when you're at your best? So if you're not looking for the people who are naysayers, you're actually looking for people who really are excited.
2: Yeah, the ambassadors. Right? The
0: ambassadors, exactly. And so um, at Southwest, what they discovered was that they were in the freedom business. Mm. They weren't in the airline business, they were in the freedom business. And why was that? Well, in that window, Southwest was offering $49 flights. So somebody who had never been able to afford to get on a plane was now able to have the freedom to fly. Yeah. And it's so motivational when you think like, you're showing up every day, not to just put somebody on a plane, but to actually give them the freedom to fly. It's just a very different way to look at your job. And so they wrote this letter, which is almost like a manifesto. And I remember that letter that Herb Kellner wrote. And it said, today, because of you, somebody has the freedom to fly. Wow. it was like, it was so amazing. So yes, of course, you land on this one line. It becomes a manifesto. It sort of gets pulled through all of your different materials. But you have to live your purpose. I mean, you, it has to be authentic. And frankly, it has to show up in actions, not just words. And so for Southwest, they actually changed a really seminal thing in the business, which is they got rid of blackout dates. And you know, that had financial ramifications. They said, Well, we can't have blackout dates if we're in the freedom business, because that's counter to freedom. And so they made a choice, which was really a breakthrough decision for the airline industry, right? Because blackout dates meant that at the highest peak travel windows where they could actually get you to pay the most, they were going to honor your frequent flyer points. Yeah. And so That is what you do with Purpose. It actually gives you a framework to make decisions, um, which is why it's really a CEO project, right? It comes from the top. And so as a marketer, if you have Purpose, you know how to pull it through and it shows up in your marketing language. For Southwest, when they did a campaign, it said, ding, you're free to move about the cabin. It wasn't like a one-to-one, but you see how it can pull through. Yeah. And I think that that's what's amazing about Purpose is it's kind of a rallying cry and an organizing principle. And, you know, Jim Collins wrote a second book, which talks about sort of companies that go through periods of um, where like the environment is difficult, frankly, like COVID or, you know, like there's a recession or something like that. And I think the thing he uses this example of two different teams going up Mount Everest. And he says, one team, depending on the weather, changed their strategy. So it was a sunny day and they would go further. And it was a Rainy day, and they would sort of hunker down. And this other team, they just went slow, slow and steady. And intre- and this is actually a true story. Yeah. So the team that makes it to the top is a slow and steady, not the one that changes their strategy based on the environment.
2: Yeah. Ooh. In
0: fact, the, the team that changed their strategy, which you could think like, "Oh, that makes sense," had people who periled, who who you know they lost along the yeah. way. Yeah. And the point of purpose is it helps you guide steadily versus be reactive in the moment yeah I mean, it's sort of a great lesson right which is like if you have a principle a north star and you have a framework to make decisions it's you know easy when things begin to come at you to sort of question yourself and pivot in the moment but having this framework to go back to to be like well we're in the freedom business okay that's an organizing principle for how i'm going to make decisions it's a really great great um Discipline, and frankly, you see companies that are purpose-driven over time actually outperform the S and P five hundred. Right? They yeah. actually bring back better returns. Yeah, and it's because I think they have clarity of direction of strategy. Mm.
2: So, Miriam, what is your purpose? What's what's your north star mm. as as not only a, a leader but as a person?
0: You know, you're always better at doing it for other people than you are for doing it for <laughs> yourself. Right? Um. And I don't think I ever really had taken the time to think about that. But about a year ago, I gave a commencement speech at the business school at Columbia, which was just an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, You know, particularly given a commencement speech in the middle of a pandemic. So that is also something I will always remember. But as I was trying to be useful to the students, right, because, again, I show up wanting to be of service, <laughs> um, I thought about like, what was my purpose, right? I sort of broke down sort of how I made decisions and what my purpose was as a way to say, if you actually take the time to think about your purpose, it will help you make better and more mindful decisions along your journey. And so my purpose is really around connecting communities in order to make a difference. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm the child of revolution. I grew up in Iran, we left in the middle of a revolution these are all experiences you don't wish upon your children, but yeah. you know you learn resilience. And I think for me, I always sort of thought like you only live once. And so let's make a difference with the time that we have here. And so I think when I would show up in a new school, which was often, um, you know, sort of the outsider, my way of finding belonging was by stepping in, right? Mm. I stepped in, I sort of became an active member of the community. I joined the clubs. I think when I showed up in Lafayette, California, for junior high, I joined every single club. I mean, including <laughs> bowling and softball club. N- you know, And I was on like varsity, whatever, JV3, because I was so bad. But I, took, <laughs> I joined because it was a way to sort of step in and participate. And so, you know, I think that was inherent. I, I now can unpack that, but I don't think I knew any of that before I took the time to sort of Deconstruct that.
2: Yeah, but it feels like that's why next door is such a perfect role for you.
0: It's funny people say that all the time. They're like, "Oh my God, this is the perfect role for you," and I think it is, right? I mean, the reason I came back to the you know day job, if you would, after having taken time off is because the purpose of next door is core to who I am, right? Um, cultivating a kind of world where everyone has a neighborhood to rely on. It is inherently what I believe in. 20 some years ago, when we moved to Chelsea, I joined the Block Association and I signed up to be the Block Association secretary, much to the chagrin of my teenagers for like <laughs> um, But, you know, I do think being connected to your neighbors, to your city, to your community makes a difference. And I think like, you know, do something, leave the world in a better place than you found it.
2: Yeah. So as a CMO, you do all sorts of amazing things in the purpose space and the marketing space. What are some of those tools that you use to market a business that you think our listeners could use to market their own career and their own professional brand?
0: Well, I think it's a really good exercise to think about what your brand is, Mm. right? And so just like you would do for a business, taking the time to say, What does your brand stand for? So again, go back in my career, there was a moment in which I was like, well, what is my brand? And Mm. I think if you were doing this for a company, the first thing you would do is you'd say, what is the perception of my brand? And by the way, is that the brand I wanna have? Yeah. And so one of the things I did is I went through all my old performance reviews. I even went through sort of like recommendations high school teachers had written me. Because remember, you're trying to uncover your DNA to some degree. Yeah. So some things are consistent. And then you say, okay, well, when I look at that, is that the brand I want to have? And maybe it is, or maybe it's not. And then you're like, okay, how do I get from point A to point B? Yeah. The first thing to do is what you would do with any brand, which is you have to look back and actually do the homework. It's sort of what we always call in marketing the discovery phase. And then from the discovery, you come up with your strategy and then you get to your go-to-market where you actually deploy that, and by the way, The way you measure that is like, okay, if I want my brand to be X, you gotta go back and do that exercise again at the end of that process and say, did I move the needle? Yeah, yeah. You can do that for yourself. There is a great article that Tom Peters wrote in I think I wanna say 97. He's sort of considered the father of marketing in many circles. It was called Brand Called You. Yeah. And I think it was the cover story of Wired or Fast Company, one of those two. And he said, you are a brand. The gig economy is here. So he was definitely ahead of his time. And so think of yourself as a brand. And the visual was of Tide, but it was you instead of the word Tide in the middle. And I think that was sort of the moment where people began to say, wait a second, you were a brand.
2: Yeah. Well, Miriam, I have a couple of really quick, fun questions for you. Uh, Let's say uh, if you were a type of car, what type of car would you be? A
0: 1960s 250 Mercedes SL convertible.
2: Oh, and why?
0: Okay, because I don't even know that much about cars, but that is a classic car that actually is also a little bit trendy, and it's a convertible because you only live once. And so my moment of joy is to have, like, the wind in my hair with the music layering down, driving down PCH.
2: Yeah. Um, We've been talking all about great brands. What brand are you obsessed with right now as a consumer?
0: Okay, Upside Pizza in New Ooh. York. Really delicious. Really, really good, right? I mean, I think I'm interested in hospitality and food because it's all about an experience. Yeah. They opened up something next door called soft side. So they have soft side ice cream next to upside pizza. Amazing, amazing idea. I'm interested in, um, you know, all the delivery services and how that's changed the world. Like yesterday, I actually ordered Instacart for my mom because she had double hip um, replacement surgery and she was waiting for somebody to bring her something and I was like you don't have to wait for anybody you can be independent by just ordering online right that's a thing we've really like now discovered on in these last two years that yeah there is this thing called the internet through which you can order things and they show up to your home um what are other brands it's a good question I mean I still love Nike Mm. You know, I just ordered my 10th pair of Air Force Ones. There's something I love about those Air Force One sneakers. You know, I actually went to a meeting this morning and it was this moment where I said to my husband, am I going to wear my sneakers? (laughs) And, and, you know, I've been, I used to wear Converse. I loved my Converse. In fact, I remember when I was leaving Gannett, they gave me an illustration of me and I was wearing my Converse in the (laughs) illustration. Today, I would be wearing Air Force Ones.
2: Mm. Uh, And finally, Miriam, what's the best career advice that you'd like to give to our listeners?
0: I would say go for it. Oh, my God. It's like Nike all over again. (laughs) You know, I think it's just do it, right? I mean, I think there are so many things that get in our way, including ourselves. There's so many reasons that we say I can't, I shouldn't. It's not what's expected of me or what if I fail? And I would say just go for it just go do and in doing it's kind of like Shonda Rhimes. I think she gave a great commencement speech at, um, I want to say it was at Dartmouth. And she said, I wanted to be Toni Morrison. And I just went instead of waiting to become Toni Morrison, I started just doing and in doing, I became Shonda Rhimes. And I think it's such a great lesson. I think the other great lesson is, um, don't be afraid to carve your own path. Mm. I think I come from a generation where the path was sort of established and you had to fit into that path today people, there's just not the boundaries that there were, right? And so you can have your own podcast, you can write your own book, you can become a content creator, an influencer, you can be Ava DuVernay and actually create your own entertainment company after you're 40. So just go do and own your space because- It takes a lot to have to conform to other people's definition. And frankly, when you step into your space, you allow others to do the same. And I think that's where we win together, where we actually make room for people to have joy and be their authentic self and bring others along that journey.
2: Yeah. Well, I love that. Go do and own your space. Miriam Bannikarum, thank you so much for joining us and remind us again, how can our listeners find out more about The Next Door 100?
0: Just go to thenextdoor100.com and, you know, nominate someone. Nominate the person who gives you extra meat on your turkey sandwich at the deli every week, right? We love that guy. <laughs> um, You know, or Nathaniel and Troy, who were part of my pod. Just- Think of all the people as simple as the person who just waves, right? Like that simple hello to the person who, you know, mows your lawn. Yeah. Pick pick whatever works for you, but take the second to recognize somebody,
2: right? So, everybody go out there and nominate all of those fabulous people on the nextdoor100.com.
0: Excellent.
2: Thank you, Miriam. And I'll be back in just a few moments with my final thoughts. thoughts
1: are you tired of not being recognized for your work are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level the lead with your brand career breakthrough mentoring program will help you take control of your career develop your own unique brand and catapult you to a whole new level of success you are a top performer and the lead with your brand career breakthrough mentoring program is what you need to get you there visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how
2: Wow. I just loved reconnecting with Miriam Banakarum of Nextdoor. You know what? Miriam has always been this fireball of inspiration for me as I worked with her back in the old NBC Universal days. You know, Miriam just has so many words of wisdom, but you know what really sat with me was this whole notion of being purpose-driven. Because at the end of the day, part of you being your best authentic you is knowing what your purpose is. And I love that Miriam was able to find her purpose. I think back, and I know I've always been, able to define my purpose because I have always been on a mission to change lives and make sure that everyone has the power to find their true voice and bring their best selves to work every single day. So I ask you to think about what is your purpose? What gets you out of bed, not just for your current role, but what gets you out of bed in life? What gets you out of bed that is going to help you do great work? Once you define that purpose, you can wrap your brand all around that and figure out how you can supercharge, super serve, and super change the world. Well, that's our show for you today. If you liked what you heard, make sure that you hit follow on iTunes or wherever you're getting your podcasts, and we'll bring you a brand new show every single Tuesday. Feel free to check me out on social media. I'm at Jason Patria on all platforms and make sure to connect with me on LinkedIn where I share tons of tips and tricks on how you can lead with your brand to your next career breakthrough. And most importantly of all, In your career, do not be a boring old commodity like coffee. Make sure you are a super premium brand like Starbucks.
1: You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria.